from NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. It was down to the wire, but with hours to go, Congress avoided a government shutdown last night. On this vote, the yeas are 88, the nays are 9. Under the previous order requiring 60 votes for the passage of this bill, the bill is passed. And the Chinese government sentenced a prominent Uyghur scholar to life in prison. Plus, NPR's own Scott Detrow tried out green onion check cereal for us with milk. Talk about dedication to your job. And there's always the puzzle. It's Sunday, October 1st. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The federal government remains open for business. Congress averted a shutdown that was widely believed to be inevitable after lawmakers sent a stopgap funding measure to President Biden's desk last night. The breakthrough came after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reversed himself and asked Democrats for help, a move that could cost him his job. NPR's Dieter Walsh. House Republicans expect a vote. Many believe it will happen by the end of the year to get rid of McCarthy. A lot of these hardliners said, if you work with Democrats, we don't want you to be the speaker anymore. That vote could happen basically as soon as Monday. The one thing that McCarthy has going for him is he did get a majority of his own members to back this bill, so that helps him respond to those who say he's not listening. McCarthy remains defiant, saying he was being the adult in the room after spending weeks trying to get a group of hardline Republicans on board. The bill funds the government through November 17th, but does not provide additional aid for Ukraine. President Biden praising the last-minute deal, signing it shortly after the Senate gave it final approval. But NPR's deepest Shivaram report the president is also calling for continued support for Ukraine. Biden says the resolution passed in Congress is good news for the American people and prevents what he says was a manufactured crisis. But in a statement, Biden also says, quote, we cannot under any circumstances allow American support for Ukraine to be interrupted. He added that he expects House Speaker McCarthy will keep his commitment to funding Ukraine, which would be introduced in separate legislation. McCarthy in the past has expressed support for funding Ukraine, but has also shared reservations some Republicans have about accountability. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Overseas now to Slovakia, where a party headed by a populist former prime minister who campaigned on ending military aid to Ukraine has beaten its progressive rival. But NPR's Rob Schmitz reports a party will need to win allies to form the next government. The left-wing smear or direction edged out the liberal progressive Slovakia party in a campaign between two very different futures for the country of five and a half million people. Smear prime minister candidate Robert Fico has vowed to join Hungary in challenging the European Union's consensus on support for Ukraine. His party will now need to form a coalition to govern Slovakia. To central Illinois, where five people were killed, another 500 temporarily evacuated after a leak of toxic chemicals caused by a tanker truck crash Friday night. Illinois Public Media's Owen Anderson has more. According to fire officials, a multi-vehicle accident caused a tanker carrying anhydrous ammonia to roll over a few miles east of the town of Tutopolis, releasing a plume of the toxic chemical into the air. Officials from the state and federal environmental protection agencies and departments of transportation are still investigating the crash and contamination. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Members of the all-democratic Massachusetts congressional delegation say their support for Ukraine is unwavering. The state's lawmakers voted to keep the government running despite the lack of any new funds approved for Ukraine's fight against Russia. Newton Congressman Jake Auchincloss tells CNN there needs to be a floor vote on the assistance for Ukraine. Community activists in Lynn are calling for an end to gun violence in the city. They marched yesterday to call attention to two deadly shootings in under 24 hours early last month. The victim's family members took part. The 35th annual Boston Jimmy Fund Walk is underway. This year's walk is projected to raise just over $9 million for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It is 56 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, highs in the mid-70s. Tomorrow, sunny, highs in the low 70s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Proven Winners with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a variety of native shrubs and trees for a landscape that's gentler on the earth. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash native shrubs. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. And that's a very important point. WBUR has no paywall, never had a paywall, never will have a paywall. But that's why we're calling on you to make a monthly contribution. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. You can also make your monthly contribution at WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. And Jay Clayton's with me in the studio. Hey, Sharon. You know, if you've never given to WBUR before, you might not know that the biggest share of the funding for Weekend Edition this morning and for everything that you get from WBUR, that funding comes from listeners who put their money together with their voluntary contributions. And what we're suggesting is that you consider a monthly gift, an automatic gift that will come to WBUR every month through your checking account or your credit card if you'd like to do it that way. And that ongoing support will give WBUR financial certainty going forward. And that is huge, knowing how dependable our journalism is and how dependable it needs to be. So go to the phone, call 1-800-909-9287 or give online at wbur.org. And uh, our goal for this fall fundraiser is for 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors to WBUR. And it is the moment for you to step up and become one of them. And a very important one because your monthly contribution is what keeps WBUR strong. And we have a special thank you gift for you for your pledge of $12 per month. Uh, we would be delighted to send you a WBUR t-shirt. It's the, you know, excellent looking uh, baseball shirt. It's got the navy sleeves, the gray uh, body, and it, of course, uh, has a big WBUR logo on it. It looks great, and you'll look great in it. And when you 
give your monthly gift of $12 a month. That can be yours. All you have to do is call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. You have to do it quickly, though, because these T-shirts, they're available for a very limited time. So this is the day to get yours. And, of course, you'll be supporting WBUR and helping to strengthen our journalism even more. No government shutdown. We'll get to the latest from Weekend Edition in just a second. While we wait for that, please take a minute and support WBUR with your monthly contribution. WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. And again, your monthly support is what makes the funding for WBUR, um, you know, it, it creates reliable source of funding for WBUR. Here in the newsroom, we'll be able to plan for all the coverage that you need and deserve. So again, your $12 a month uh, can get you that WBUR t-shirt. Start the process now. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And thank you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for being with us. Congress came together yesterday to avoid a government shutdown after a last-minute pivot by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, one that could cost him his job as Speaker. You know what? If somebody wants to remove because I want to be the adult in the room, go ahead and try. But I think this country is too important. McCarthy abandoned demands from hardline members of his own party and passed a stopgap spending bill with the help of Democrats. NPR's political reporter, Jimena Bustillo, joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So give us the details of this deal. Congress passed a bill to fund the government at current funding levels, but only through November 17th. And this also included money for natural disaster relief that was pretty bipartisan. And it authorized the Federal Aviation Administration through the end of the year. But it doesn't include provisions to crack down on immigration issues at the U.S.-Mexico border. And those were policies that hardline Republicans wanted, but Democrats did not support. Um, Though 90 House Republicans voted against this, all but one Democrat voted for it, helping McCarthy go to the finish line. Is there any reason to think that Congress can resolve their bigger spending differences by the time this new short-term deal runs out in mid-November? Well, Congress always does tend to wait for the last minute, as we saw last night, so it is likely we at least face another threat of a shutdown. But the big question is whether or not McCarthy is going to have to deal with a challenge to his leadership before then that could delay this process. McCarthy also told me that he's planning on working with the Senate before then to wrap it all up within 45 days. But border funding and Ukraine aid are big issues that will have to be tackled, and as of today, there's no clear path forward. So what might happen in terms of Speaker McCarthy's future? Well, House members aren't the only ones putting pressure on McCarthy. Former President Trump has been calling for spending cuts on social media, and he's gone so far as to endorse a government shutdown. And he's criticized a debt limit deal that McCarthy struck earlier this year with President Biden. He is a major factor in all of this, even if he's far from Washington right now. Well, let's turn now to former President Donald Trump, because he's facing a trial in New York related to his business. Catch us up on what's happening with that. Mm -hmm. Well, this happens after there's 
there's a trial that's starting on Monday after a three-year investigation done by New York's Democratic Attorney General Letitia James, who filed a lawsuit last year claiming Trump and his executive team engaged in fraudulent business practices. This includes allegations that the value of Trump's businesses and market value of real estate holdings in New York State and in Florida were inflated in order to land deals negotiate with banks and insurers. The former president tried to delay the trial, but has failed. And so now this week um, coming up, we're going to see the start of this trial. Appearing on the witness lists are both the former president and some of his children, including Eric Trump, Don Jr. And uh, the attorneys general team also wants to call in Ivanka Trump, his daughter. But not all may take the stand. So this trial comes just days after a New York judge ruled that Trump and his associates did exaggerate Trump's net worth in order to complete deals and receive better funding. So how does that ruling tie into tomorrow's trial? Though the judge ruled on what was probably one of the major elements of the lawsuit, there are still some claims brought forth by the attorney general's office that need to be argued at trial. And this includes that Trump and his associate associates filed false documents, conspired to falsify business records, and committed insurance fraud. And the attorney general is seeking roughly $250 million in penalties. Um, so how have Trump and his lawyers reacted? Trump denies all wrongdoing. Trump has called the fraud allegation, uh, accusations ridiculous and untrue and has accused both the judge and New York Attorney General, who are Democrats, of being politically motivated. And Christopher Keis, a lawyer for Trump, called the initial ruling that confirmed the fraud allegations that you just mentioned outrageous and a miscarriage of justice. And then about 30 seconds left, uh, where does this trial fit in the grand scheme of Trump's various legal troubles? This is one of four lawsuits that the former president is facing just in New York. And though most of the trials are expected to start next year, so in the middle of the presidential election, this one's expected to wrap up by the end of this year, meaning that it will be one of the first ones to deliver a decision. These New York trials are separate from charges he's facing related to the 2020 election and the Mar-a-Lago document case. So that's important to remember. That's NPR's Jimena Bustillo. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The United Auto Workers Union strike is now in its third week. Workers want better wages and benefits from auto companies that have seen record profits in recent years. That's largely because the union gave up a lot of its hard-fought benefits to bail out those companies during the Great Recession. There's a lot of history there, and NPR's Don Gagne joins us now from Detroit with more. Good morning, Don. Hi, good morning. So this is a union that was born out of a strike, a, a work stoppage at GM in the 1930s in Flint, Michigan. Tell us about that time. It was 1936 when the famous sit-down strike took place at GM in Flint. There was no union at the time. The plants were dirty. Uh, the company had speed up the line to boost production when they needed it. None of the veterans of the sit-down strike are alive today. But back in the mid-1980s, I was a younger reporter. I got to know some of those sit-down strikers. Here are some short clips from a radio story I produced 50 years after the strike. We were running between jobs. There wasn't any walking back there leisurely. You ran between jobs to get to try to pick up your work. You were running 75 and 80 cars an hour. There were so many men on each job, see, and you had to keep up with them jobs. We didn't even have time to go to the bathroom. I'm telling you the truth. Vacation? You got va We had long vacations. We had a good vacation period. Three or four months every year, but we didn't get paid. 
Again, those are voices from 1986. That last one you heard there is former Flint worker Larry Jones. The, the key to the sit-down strike was that they didn't set up a picket line. They simply sat down on the job and occupied the plant. Uh, the factory was shut down as a result. It worked. That's when the UAW was born. That's when they won the right to negotiate contracts. How did that go? Like, did the gains come quickly? Or? Uh, they, they did not. It was slow. Okay. There were more strikes, more struggles, and violent clashes at times. Uh, then came World War II. U.S. car factories switched to wartime production with union help. Union car plants began cranking out Jeeps and tanks and planes. Remember Rosie the Riveter? Mm-hmm. She was a UAW member. And, mm. and the key to all of this was a young UAW leader named Walter Ruther. When the war ended and workers uh, had more leverage, Ruther and the UAW fought hard for better wages, for better health benefits, and even pensions. Two decades later, Ruther looked back. And our slogan was, we wanted pensions for workers to provide security and dignity when they are too old to work but too young to die. So were the post-war years also boom years for the union in the way that they were for much of the the U.S. economy back then? Absolutely. And unions then really created the middle class. Generation after generation in a single family would get jobs at auto plants. Uh, The same held for African-American families. There were opportunities in car plants. It was a key part of building the black middle class as well. Post-war car sales boomed. Big cars, big fins, new models every year. And the UAW grew too. But but boom times, they they don't last, and and we know that it's not the way it used to be today, right? Right. The the jolt of reality came in the early 70s, the Arab oil embargo. Uh, Gas prices soared. Gas-guzzling American cars had a problem. Uh, U.S. market share plummeted. GM once had a 50% market share in the U.S. These days, less than 20%. And as time went on, Japanese car makers moved some production to the U.S., but to non-union plants, while U.S. car makers started shifting some of their production overseas. All of that hurt the UAW. As a large number of U.S. plants were closed, there were more strikes in the 80s and in the 90s, and it was all about saving jobs then. Uh, here's a striking welder named Gary Kanan. I talked to him 25 years ago outside a factory in Flint. We don't stand out now. It's going to affect us even five years down the line where General Motors is going to shut at least another quarter of assembly plants down and parts plants down. Well, we got to fight now. If we don't fight now for our own people, there won't be anything for our children. There's not going to be nothing for us, and, and that's the issue. And it's interesting. Today's battles are actually being fought by those children, and they're fighting for things Kanan warned about back then, including the pensions we heard Walter Ruther mention. So one of the big sticking points at the bargaining table now is over how much UAW members gave up. Back in 2008, 2009, you know, there was the financial crisis and, and, and both GM and Chrysler were at risk. They, they both declared bankruptcy. The union gave up big concessions back then in order to help the companies survive. Uh, As a result, new workers got paid less. Veteran workers gave up pay and benefits. Uh, Here's President Obama still new, very new to office then, thanking auto workers for sacrificing. The United Auto Workers, who had already made painful concessions, 
agreed to further cuts in wages and benefits, cuts that will help Chrysler survive, making it possible for so many workers to keep their jobs and about 170,000 retirees and their families to keep their health care. And those concessions are now front and center in today's strike. NPR's Don Gagne, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. You're listening to NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Fort Point Arts Community's Open Studios event, featuring free performances by Boston Lyric Opera on Saturday, October 14th at Midway Studios. Visit fortpointarts.org for more information. I'm Tiziana Deering. At WBUR, our job goes beyond reporting the news. We also help make sense of an increasingly complex world. We foster understanding, build community, and when we can, we spark joy and laughter. But as we look forward, we know our future's not a given. Giving monthly, it is key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Or you can call 1-800-909-9287 using the, you know, making a phone call or going online at WBUR.org. What we're asking you to do is to, you know, start your October thinking about how much you count on WBUR every day uh, on the air, online with podcasts, uh, subscribing to WBUR newsletters, going to City Space. There are so many ways that uh, we help you keep up with what's happening in Boston and around the world. And you've let us know how important WBUR is to you in all those respects. And so now it's time to make a monthly gift. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And if you're just joining us this morning, the government did not shut down after all. We'll continue to follow that for you on Weekend Edition and at WBUR.org. We do need listener support to bring you everything that you get from WBUR. Quite simply, listener support is the biggest share of the funding for WBUR. That's why your gift matters. A monthly gift matters because we've got an eye toward the future, knowing, as Tiziana said, that our future is not a given. There's nobody that swoops in and says, oh, here's a big pile of money if, if you know, we're, we're in a little bit of a jam. So we really do need your support to bring you all the things that you rely on from WBUR. Make it a monthly gift at WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. My name's Scott Detrow, and I host All Things Considered on the weekends. I really enjoy the challenge of considering all things. You know, you can be on the line with a senator, then you're shifting gears and you're talking to a musician, you know. For the bulk of my, my career as a member station reporter, I was a statehouse reporter. So many things that affect people's lives are happening in those buildings. In just about every state, there's a public radio reporter there. It is a very challenging time to be a reporter. The business models that made journalism work for decades have gone up in smoke, 
and people increasingly just tune in to news sources that tell them what they want to hear. Public radio stations have really kind of stepped up in the middle of all of this to tell you the facts, to give you the information you need to make your own decisions. The whole NPR network is stronger with your support. Give to this station today, and thanks. Thank you for your monthly contribution to WBUR. Uh, if you haven't made that contribution yet, now's the great time to do it. one 800 is the number to call. You can also make your monthly gifts online at WBUR.org. And how about a new WBUR shirt for you? We would love to send you a WBUR t-shirt. We have a new baseball shirt. It's got WBUR emblazoned on the front of it. It's got the navy blue sleeves and a nice uh, Heather Gray, uh, you know, body of the shirt. Uh, it's just basically a great baseball shirt. And if you're like me and your entire wardrobe consists of T-shirts, then you're going to appreciate having this in your wardrobe. And uh, we'll be happy to send that to you when you make a $12 a month contribution. Uh, and the way you do that is by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. And that $12 a month, you're going to feel good about that every time you wear your shirt, every time you see that charge on your credit card or coming out of your checking account, however you want to do that, because you'll know that you are part of the community that not only listens to WBUR, but actually contributes a little bit to make WBUR possible. That is a great feeling. Just ask anyone who's ever given to this radio station before. They will tell you that. Economists even have a, a term for it. It's called a warm glow, this feeling that you get for doing something you don't have to do, but it just feels right and feels good to do it. So go ahead and make your monthly gift. Pick up the shirt as our thanks. That is available for a very limited time only, so take advantage of it. WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. Thank you so much for taking just a couple of minutes this morning to take care of this very important transaction, your monthly contribution to support WBUR, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. One of the most important scholars on Uyghur culture has been given a life prison sentence in China. Rahila Dawut is an expert on her culture's folklore and traditions. She's published internationally and worked with scholars from all over the world, often with Chinese government funding. So why is she deemed such a threat by China? For more, we're joined by NPR's international correspondent, Emily Fang. Welcome to the program. Hey, Aisha. What was Rahila Dawut charged with? So she was charged with splitism, and this is a charge akin to secession or treason, as well as endangering national security. 
and she was actually put on trial five years ago in December 2018. This was after she basically just disappeared the year before, and it only later emerged that she and several of her graduate students from Xinjiang University's Humanities College had been arrested. So this was years ago, but we're only finding out now about her sentence this month. Her sentence was confirmed by Duihua, a U.S. humanitarian foundation that advocates for political prisoners, and they said they saw a document written by a senior Chinese official that states Dr. Dawu had been sentenced to life in prison. And how has the Uyghur community responded? Well, the confirmation is devastating for her family, especially her daughter, Akita Pulat, who lives in Seattle. She'd feared the worst. But this result is far beyond my imagination. Just imagine your mom will spend her life in prison for the rest of her life. That is an unbearable pain for the rest of my life as well. Pulat says she last communicated with her mother over text shortly before she was arrested, but she hasn't been able to see her mother or talk to her at all since that arrest. The U.S. State Department late last week issued a strong statement condemning the sentencing of the professor. Tell us more about the work she's known for and, and why the Chinese government believed it endangered national security. Professor Dawu is a trailblazer. She is a uh, one of the first, if not the first woman in China to get a PhD in her field of Uyghur ethnography. She's best known for documenting the folklore and the religious customs of her people, the Uyghur people. And so for this, she would go to weddings. She would get to these cultural, uh, she would go to these cultural get-togethers called Meshreps in Uyghur to actually record and notate down the oral traditions and stories that her people had been telling for centuries. And no one had done this before. As part of her research, she also traveled to hundreds of shrines left by Uyghur pilgrims across the Xinjiang region for Sufi saints. And she documented these shrines before they crumbled to dust. And her work meant that she traveled in pretty grueling conditions sometimes. You know, Xinjiang is a big place. It has high altitude. It's about four times the size of California with mountains and deserts. But when he, I talked to Professor Dawood's colleagues from all over the world, it's really clear that she loved her work. And Akita, her daughter, says she went on one trip with her mother. I remember the condition of this trip is horrible, but my mother was really enjoyed it. Like, I can see the spark in her eye when she talked to local people in the village. But it's this kind of academic work that also made Rahila Dewu a target. Her work shows how the Uyghur people are a distinct people. They have their own culture. They have customs. They have heritage that is both tangible and intangible. And so she became an obstacle to the Chinese state when it wanted to both quash Uyghur identity and emphasize China's ethnic majority, the Han, instead. That's NPR international correspondent Emily Fang. Thank you so much, Emily. Thanks, Aisha. Russia has a new friend in Europe. Slovakia, Ukraine's neighbor, just concluded parliamentary elections, and a party led by a pro-Russian politician came out on top. The leader is Robert Fico. He's a two-time prime minister, but was ousted in 2018 after mass protests over the murder of a journalist who was investigating government corruption. This time around, Fitzo campaigned on an anti-immigration, anti-LGBTQ+, and an anti-American platform. He wants to cut military support for Ukraine amid Russia's invasion and opposes EU sanctions on Russia. Instead of arming Ukraine, Fitzo says the West should help Russia and Ukraine hatch a deal to end the war. 
up to now, Slovakia, a NATO member, supported Ukraine's effort to repel Russia. It sent arms and military equipment into Ukraine and took in refugees. But now, many worry about fractures within NATO with the rise of FITSA. Some inmates awaiting trial in Montana remain in jail for months because of severe mental illness. They can't go to trial until they can get mental health treatment. As Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports, there's only one hospital in the state where they can go, and it's completely overwhelmed. At the Flathead County Jail, there's a separate mental health wing. As Jail Commander Jen Root walks down the cinder block hallway, a psychiatric inmate yells from behind her steel door. Root takes me farther along to another cell door where we peer through a small window. So you'll see this is her living condition right here. A young woman is curled up on a mattress on the floor, a blanket pulled over her head. Only her bright pink fingernails stick out. She is charged with burglary, and she's been here longer than anyone else. She's been here almost a year, just laying on her bed. Like, that's what she's been doing for a year. Commander Root says the woman has a severe mental illness. She refuses to take showers. She won't go outside. And most crucially, she won't take medications prescribed by the jail's psychiatrist. We can't force Medicaid or anything like that. Like many here and in other Montana jails, this woman can't stand trial until she goes to the Montana State Hospital. It's the only place in the state that can force criminal inmates to take their medication. The wait list for the state hospital has nearly doubled over the past year, often hovering around 70 people. Wait times can vary from a month to over a year. And women tend to wait longer because only six beds are reserved for them out of 54 total. Montana isn't alone. More than 2 million people with serious mental illness are jailed nationwide each year. And research shows they tend to get sicker while there and remain in jail longer than other inmates. Root says her staff members often feel helpless. Probably my biggest frustration with our whole system is the mentally ill and having people in here that should not be criminally charged. Yes, they broke the law. Yes, they're not safe to be out in the public, but being in jail is not the answer for them either. The Montana State Hospital is run by the state health department, but it's local judges who decide who should be sent there for involuntary psychiatric treatment. As the waiting list grows, state health officials like Chad Parker say they are being unfairly blamed for the bottleneck. When there are no available patient beds or they are not available for some time, the department can be held in contempt or receive another sanction. Parker wants lawmakers to give the health department more control over the involuntary commitment process. He argues there are other options. Judges could send inmates back to the community to be mentally stabilized. There's room for community care to be ordered. It is underutilized, if rarely utilized, through the court ordering process. But many say that's unrealistic. Those local psychiatric services have shrunk as Montana's population has boomed. In a role as Kalispell District Court Judge Amy Eddy oversees many criminal commitments to the state psychiatric hospital. She says there are no other options for these inmates. If someone needs to be involuntarily medicated, which the vast majority of people do in order to stabilize, the only place that can be done is at the state hospital. 
Meanwhile, the woman who has been waiting a year inside the Flathead County Jail has been slowly moving up the state hospital's waiting list. She's still only number two on the list. Commander Jen Root says the jail just doesn't have enough space for inmates with mental health conditions. Some are eventually released because they've waited too long for care at the state hospital. It's like this revolving door. They don't have the resources or the support to help them maintain their medications or housing or any of that, and then they end up right back in here. This spring, state lawmakers set aside $300 million for the state's mental health system. The money could go to community services or be used to build two new state-run mental health facilities. That would help take pressure off the state hospital, but it'll be years before they become a reality. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Kalispell, Montana. That story comes from NPR's partnership with Montana Public Radio and KFF Health News. Okay, a little bit of a follow-up, three years in the making. Those of you with good memories might recall this story we featured on Weekend Edition back when Scott Detrow was filling in as a guest host. In South Korea, there's a new Chex flavor in the breakfast aisle. Green onion. Kellogg's has rolled out this new variety of Chex with a commercial featuring Taejin Ah, a popular Korean singer rocking a green suit and hat combination that can only be described as scallion-rific. Now, why the big deal about Green Onion Checks? And why was the singer singing I'm Sorry over and over in Korean? The backstory. In 2004, Kellogg's Korea asked folks to vote for a new flavor of Checks, chocolate or green onion. And Green Onion won overwhelmingly. But Associated Press reporter Juwan Park told us that Kellogg's Korea was not happy about that outcome. Kellogg's Korea deleted votes, or what they call a duplicate votes, and then they held additional votings. So they would put an ad hoc voting booth in an amusement park on top of deleting votes. So, I mean, at the end, the chocolate-flavored cereal won. It took until 2020 for Kellogg's Korea to finally make that rigged election right and put green onion checks into production. And that was the end of our story until last week, when a box showed up on the desk of Scott Detrow postmarked July 2020. It had sat in NPR's mailroom for three years. You know, there was that pandemic. Scott knew he had to open it. The only things I can read are Kellogg's and limited edition, and then there's Korean lettering, and there is what appears to be an angry Hulk-colored Chex cereal with bad breath. It's got, like, green, squiggly breath. And then behind him, there's a chocolate-looking Chex who I don't know. It could be horrified. It could be surprised. There, There's a look of astonishment on the chocolate-flavored Chex in the background. We need a taste test. Do it, Scott. Do it. So I'm going to try it plain first. Mmm. There. Oh, there's the onion. The onion. <laughs> the onion was. It started out a little sweet, and then just a rush of onion comes in, which is like really not, not a good combination. <laughs> so I guess try it with milk. Like it's cereal. We should try it with milk and see if that makes it any different. 
dubious. <laughs> that truly tastes terrible. That tastes terrible. Um, yeah, you've got sweet, you've got onion, and you've got milk all kind of mixed together. Would not recommend. He's not a fan of the green onion checks with milk, but... Okay, so I went back and listened to the original story, and the reporter we talked to did suggest that based on the flavor profile, maybe it's more of like a bar snack type cereal that you have with a beer. We went ahead and got that ready just in case. So we're just gonna we're just gonna eat it out of the box with some beer and see if this makes it any better. Okay, this makes the most sense so far, as predicted three years ago when we did this story. Um, yeah, so do not do not eat this with milk like normal cereal. Just put it in a bowl, have it with some beer if you want. But like, I think really. I think really you're fine not having it. That's my takeaway. NPR's Scott Detrow, now a host of All Things Considered, finally getting his taste of green onion check cereal three years after he first told us all about it on this program. Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College, who believes the future is fueled by entrepreneurial leaders. Learn to lead with impact and become a driving force for change. Explore Babson's full-time in-person programs and part-time in-person and online programs at their graduate virtual open house, October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash gradopenhouse. I'm Deepa Fernandez. The crisis in journalism has been chronicled many times over. The pandemic and current economic conditions hasten the decline. Most of the focus has been on newspapers, but even WBUR's own future is far from assured. That's why we need more members and member dollars. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the single best thing you can do to keep our journalism going. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thank you. And you can also give monthly by making a phone call, 1-800-909-9287. Or again, you can go to the website, WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Jay Clayton's in the studio with me. And we've got some good news for you. We know that you want to support WBUR. We know you want your money to make a big difference. Here's a way for your money to make an even bigger difference. Right now, a triple match is in effect. That's only for the next, like, 18 minutes or so. With this triple match, we will triple match every dollar you give for your monthly gift for an entire year. Do that by going to WBUR.org or by calling 1-800-909-9287. This makes this really the best time to give. Think about, you know, imagine that you've got 20 bucks in your wallet and all of a sudden, boom, it triples to 60 bucks. And that happens next month and the next month and, the ne- and every month for a year, right? That is the power 
of what you can do for WBUR by giving $20 a month right now or any other monthly gift that you choose, it's also going to be tripled for a year. So great time to make a monthly gift. And the real significance of that monthly gift is that we've got an eye toward our future here at WBUR. We want that future to be financially sustainable and monthly gifts are what make that happen. So get in on this triple match. As Sharon says, it's only for 19 minutes until nine o'clock this morning. The way to get in on it is to go to wbur.org or call this number, 1-800-909-9287. It's the first day of October. You can make a fresh start for October by uh, making this triple match happen with your money. What you do is you make a phone call, 1-800-909-9287, or you go to wbur.org. The entire transaction will take you maybe two minutes. uh, And then you will know that your generous monthly contribution will be triple matched for a whole year. So if you're able to give $15 a month, the triple match turns that into $45 a month for an entire year. You're only giving 15, the station is getting 45. If you're able to give $100 a month, you know, that becomes $300 a month for WBUR. This is a great opportunity. It's only in effect until 9 o'clock, so you've got just a little over 15 minutes now to make this tax-deductible gift that will make really a huge impact. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And if you pick up the new WBUR baseball shirt as our thanks for your contribution of $12 a month, that will help fuel this journalism triple times right now during this match, only for the next 15 minutes. So get in on it while you can at WBUR.org. That's WBUR.org. Or here's the phone number, one 800 909 9287 for your triple match. And, you know, when you listen to WBUR, you may think first about the people whose voices you're hearing on the air and the stories that they're telling. But keep in mind that, uh, you know, lined up behind every voice you hear on WBUR, on NPR, are an entire crew of editors and engineers and producers and all sorts of folks who are making sure that the journalism that you're getting is high quality, is accurate, is compelling, is fair. And your generous monthly contribution uh, keeps that thriving here at WBUR. Once again, the triple match is in effect for just about the next 14 minutes until 9 o'clock. That means for every, you know, contribution you make, your monthly contribution is tripled for an entire year. So do that by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. And fear not, the puzzle is here. It's on deck. We're going to get to it in just a second. While we're doing that, take advantage of this opportunity to triple the impact of whatever you can give each month to WBUR. Set up an automatic monthly gift of $12, 
$20, $30 if you can do that, would be great. It will help to fuel all this journalism that so many people across our community depend on. And your gift will be tripled just for the next 14 minutes until 9 o'clock to get in on that. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. 1-800-909-9287. And of course, you can do this at WBUR.org as well. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Seed, Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health at seed.com public. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's officially spooky season. And it's also time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, would you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from Sid Sivakumar, who is one of the top crossword contributors to the New York Times. I said, name a major U.S. city in two words. Change the first letter of the first word and the next to last letter of the second word. And then rearrange all the letters to name the people who live in this city. What city is it? And the city is San Francisco. Make those changes, and you can rearrange the letters to get Californians. Oh, okay. Now, this one, it seemed to stump a lot of y'all. <laughs> but out of 443 correct entries, Jonathan Cozen of West Hartford, Connecticut, is our puzzle winner. Congratulations, Jonathan. Thank you. Jonathan, how long have you been playing the puzzle? So my wife and I have been listening pretty much since we met, which is like 24 years ago. And I think we've been submitting for close to that period of time. But I've also been listening on and off all the way back to like Susan Stanberg time. So. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. And did you meet playing the puzzle? Is that what brought you to you and your wife together? (laughs) We did. Ah, no, we did not meet playing the puzzle. We actually met online. Well, oh, well, that is great. And 24 years ago, I didn't even know. I mean, I knew online was around them, but I didn't know they was online dating. But um, what do you do when you're not playing the puzzle? Well, for work, I'm a gynecologic oncologist. And then when I'm not working, I like to do woodworking and building boats and restoring cars and doing stuff like that. All right. Well, see, all of that is very hands-on and it requires, you know, a lot of skill. So I have to believe that you're ready to play this puzzle. I sure hope so. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> you are. You're ready. You're ready. Okay. Take it away, Will. All right, Jonathan and Aisha. Every answer today is a made-up phrase like mighty matey, consisting of two two-syllable words, that are pronounced the same except for their initial vowels. The first word in the phrase has a long I sound, and the second one has a long A. For example, if I said a powerful comrade, you would say mighty matey. Okay. So here's number one, a restaurant server who's more pale. A paler 
Oh, well, first of all, what's a restaurant server? Oh, waiter. Uh-huh. And one who's more pale would be what? A whiter waiter. A whiter waiter is right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number two, a Passover meal that comes with fermented apple juice. A cider seder. You got it. A person staring at Old Faithful, for example. Uh, a geyser, no. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh-huh. A geyser gazer? A geyser gazer is right. Uh, a double crosser who uses more hackneyed expressions. Oh, so uh, a British? No. Uh, what's a double crosser? Oh, a traitor? A, uh -huh. Oh, a Trader? A trader trader, is it? An earlier person making supplications to God. Uh, a prayer? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. A prior prayer. A prior prayer, is it? Here's your last one. It's sort of a bonus. Name two U.S. presidents whose names are appropriate for this puzzle. Ooh. <laughs> um, They're both from the 19th century. Tyler Taylor. Tyler and Taylor, you got it. Oh my goodness. Look, okay, you didn't need no help, and I'm glad because I wouldn't have been of much help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure you would have. <laughs> no, you did you did an amazing job. How do you feel? I feel great, actually. And relieved because <laughs> I'm supposed to say that. <laughs> No, you did an awesome job. So for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Jonathan, what member station do you listen to? So we listen to a lot of stations. We're actually sustaining members of four different stations, including oh WAMU and Cape and Islands Radio and WESU in Middletown and New England Public Radio. Okay, that's awesome. And I think everyone should do that. Please support as many stations as you can. That's Jonathan Cozen of West Hartford, Connecticut. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you. I had a great time. Thanks. Okay, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Jim Humphreys of Northampton, Massachusetts. Name a well-known U.S. city in four syllables. The first two syllables with a letter inserted will name an animal that might be found in the place named by the last syllable. What city is it? So again, a well-known city, four syllables. The first two syllables with a letter inserted will name an animal that might be found in the place named by the last syllable. What city is this? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, October 5th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. 
more on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu together. Celebrity Series with Jazz Along the Charles. Hear 25 bands play one set list along the Esplanade October 7th. Free to all. Jazzalongthecharles.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Many of our listeners tell us WBUR is essential in their lives. They say WBUR makes the world a better and more informed place. We're the news source they trust most. We want to be here for the long term, but our future isn't guaranteed. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. Help get us to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Or you can make a phone call, 1-800-909-9287. And, of course, you can go to the web, wbur.org. We encourage you to do that right this very second, because although your monthly contribution always makes WBUR stronger and better, your monthly contribution right now will make it even more strong and even more better because we have a triple match in effect. That means your monthly contribution will be triple matched for an entire year. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. It's almost as good as going to the ice cream store and discovering that it's extra sprinkles day, right? (laughs) WBUR really depends on listener support. It is quite frankly, the biggest share of the funding that brings you everything that you get from us. So we really hope you will start a monthly contribution during this triple match. It's only available for now another four more minutes. So take advantage of it. It will triple whatever you give automatically each month, and it will do it not just this month, but every single month for the next year. That's powerful, right? So please take advantage of that. Do what you can to give WBUR a sustainable future. WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. And, you know, WBUR has never had and does not have a paywall and will not have a paywall. Uh, Everybody can, um, you know, take in our journalism. Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi spoke with our CEO, Margaret Lowe, about why this is so crucial these days. It's crucial because we now live in a world where only those who can afford a subscription have access to many of the most credible, high-quality news sources, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, our friends at the Boston Globe. They all have paywalls, and they must in order to support the quality journalism, but it further divides the haves and have-nots. At the same time, WBUR and NPR will always be free. We are a public service which is why we count on people who can to contribute so we can continue to be a trusted source for anyone and everyone who lives here, whether they can afford to donate or not. And without a paywall, we are turning to our listeners whose voluntary financial support makes up the biggest share of the funding that makes WBUR possible. That means you, your support 
is the biggest share of our funding. So please start a monthly gift that will help give us the strong, secure future that, frankly, you deserve and do it right now because a triple match is in effect. You can give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Just uh, literally a couple of minutes left on this triple match. So whatever you do, it will go three times further. Your money put together with the matching money in a monthly gift. You start that gift right now. It will be matched every single month for the next year, but you have to do it in less than two minutes now to go. 1-800-909-9287 is the phone number to call to get in on the match. 1-800-909-9287. And of course, you can get in on the match at WBUR.org, but again, only about a minute and a half to go. And, you know, what that means is if maybe the right amount for you to give for your budget is to give $15 a month to WBUR. And, of course, we completely appreciate that. But don't forget, if you do that in the next minute, that means the triple match turns that into $45 a month for WBUR for the entire year. You're still only giving $15 a month, but WBUR is getting $45 a month. Please take advantage of this opportunity to, you know, increase the impact of your support for WBUR. The website is WBUR.org and the phone number is 1-800-909-9287. This is where you'll have the biggest impact getting in on this triple match. It's the last opportunity now to do it. Go to WBUR.org. That's WBUR.org. Or here's the phone number, 1-800-909-9287. Thank you very much. We really do appreciate whatever you can give to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is dismissing concerns that hardline Republicans could try to oust him following his decision to rely on Democratic votes to keep the government open. You know what, if somebody wants to remove because I want to be the adult in the room, go ahead and try. 
When McCarthy was elected speaker in January, he agreed to a rule allowing just one lawmaker to file a resolution calling for a vote of confidence. The Senate gave the spending bill final approval after more House Democrats than Republicans pushed it to passage. It was a dramatic day on Capitol Hill, and NPR's Jimena Bastille says the drama is not over yet. It is likely we at least face another threat of a shutdown. But the big question is whether or not McCarthy is going to have to deal with a challenge to his leadership before then that could delay this process. McCarthy also told me that he's planning on working with the Senate before then to wrap it all up within 45 days. But border funding and Ukraine aid are big issues that will have to be tackled. And as of today, there's no clear path forward. President Biden says he expects Speaker McCarthy to keep his commitment to the Ukrainian people. Billions in additional aid Biden sought was left out of the government funding package. California's governor has rejected a bill that would have given unemployment benefits to workers on strike. As Cap Radio's Nicole Nixon reports, a move has angered many of his allies in the labor movement. The legislation would have allowed striking workers to access unemployment if their labor disputes weren't resolved after two weeks. It was modeled after similar laws in New York and New Jersey and inspired in large part by this summer's drawn-out strikes in Hollywood. But Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed the legislation, citing fiscal concerns. California's unemployment fund is still $20 billion in debt after pandemic shutdowns. Labor leaders, who normally get along well with Newsom, criticized the veto as out of step with workers and are vowing to revive the legislation next year. For NPR News, I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. A U.N. team has arrived in Nagorno-Karabakh to assess humanitarian needs after the enclave was recaptured by Azerbaijan. The World Health Organization special envoy to Armenia, Rob Butler, described to the BBC the situation in a town across the border in Armenia where, where uh, refugees are arriving. The 100,000 new arrivals have immense needs. We've heard from local health facilities about chronic diseases, hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular, and of course cancer patients. Very alarmingly, we also heard of cases of severe malnutrition. As you can understand, the sense of loss, people with expressionless faces on the scale I'd never seen before. The vast majority of Nagorno-Karabakh ethnics Armenian residents have fled to Armenia in recent days, fearing oppression if they remained. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. With the government shutdown averted, members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation say they have a new focus. They say now that they voted for the temporary spending measure, their attention turns to getting more funding approved for Ukraine in its fight against Russia. An investigation is underway after a plane was forced to return to Logan Airport in Boston shortly after takeoff. The JetBlue jet was on its way to the Dominican Republic yesterday. The airline says the plane had a possible engine problem. The Big E wraps up tonight. Organizers of the annual 17-day agricultural fair in West Springfield say the rainy weather has kept the crowds smaller this year. It is 58 degrees in Boston, plenty of sunshine today with highs in the mid-70s. Tomorrow, sunny skies and highs in the low 70s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. The journalism you get from WBUR depends on a strong foundation of listener support. And that's why your monthly gift is crucial. Make a modest monthly contribution that will have deep meaning and a big impact every day. 
Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And, you know, supporting WBUR is fundamentally about what kind of good we can do when we band together with a common goal. And it's your modest monthly contribution that actually has a really major impact. Your monthly contribution is what supports uh, the journalism that creates the stories and the conversations that enhance your world. So please uh, take you know take a moment if you like to reflect on that, and then in the next moment, go ahead and make the phone call or go online. The phone number to call to make your monthly contribution is one. 1- 800-909-9287. And you can also take care of this transaction online at WBUR.org. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Jay Clayton is with the studio with me. And we have a conversation coming up in less than three minutes. Tamara Keith from NPR's Politics Desk will join Aisha Roscoe for the latest, the no government shutdown, in case you hadn't heard that yet. They'll dig into that and I'm sure quite a bit more. Nina Totenberg is coming up later in the hour, too, with a preview of the Supreme Court's business this year. Lots to listen to, lots to support. And quite honestly, we need your support to bring you Nina and Tamara and everything that you get from WBUR. Listener support is the biggest share of the funding. We are humbly suggesting and requesting a monthly contribution from your checking account or your credit card because that ongoing support automatically every month will give us financial certainty that we need going forward to bring you everything you need going forward. So give us a call at 1-800-909-9287 or start your monthly gift at our website. It's WBUR.org. And wouldn't you like a new WBUR t-shirt? Yes, please. Yes, of course you would. Of course you would because you have good taste. We know that. So um, you can get a great new WBUR t-shirt. It's a baseball shirt. It's got the, you know, the the navy sleeves and the the sort of classic gray body. And, uh, you know, of course, WBUR is emblazoned across the front. And uh, you can wear it with pride and... We'll be delighted to send you that. Uh, When you make a pledge of $12 a month uh, for WBUR, you make that uh, contribution by going to WBUR.org or by calling 1-800-909-9287. And then you can very visibly be part of the WBUR community that, of course, you're already a part of. 800-909-9287 is the number to call to make your monthly gift, or you can do that at WBUR.org. And best of all, that $12 a month or whatever you choose to give, you'll be really enriching this whole community with the, the programs that WBUR provides. Hundreds of thousands of people count on WBUR, and not all of them can give, and we get that. But if you can, we hope you will. It's really that simple. WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. At 11.15 Eastern last night, a White House email went out noting President Joe Biden had signed into law H.R. 5860. No government shutdown, at least for now. In a stunning reversal, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy put forward a short-term government funding bill, passing it with the support of Democrats and against the wishes and votes of many House Republicans. Then the Senate passed it, funding the government through November 17th. This despite no aid for Ukraine being included. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keefe joins us now. Good morning, Tam. Good morning, Aisha. For, for weeks, we've watched McCarthy try and fail to pass spending bills with Republican votes alone. And we've talked about how his hold on the speakership is, is, is tenuous at best. What changed yesterday? Well, as you say, Mark McCarthy has just been absolutely battered by the far right flank of his conference, and they've delivered him one embarrassing defeat after another on spending bills that were designed to appease them, and they all failed. So after weeks of seemingly prioritizing keeping his job over basic governing, just when it looked like there was no way to avoid a government sh shutdown, McCarthy basically said, look what you made me do. Um, and put up a bill that Democrats couldn't say no to, which meant he didn't need his far-right antagonist to go along. People like Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, who said this morning on CNN that he will move this week to oust Speaker McCarthy. Um, he also said last night on social media that the Speaker had violated the rules of the Republican conference. McCarthy was asked about this threat, uh, which has been out there for days, um, yesterday by reporters in the hallway after he had um, introduced that short-term spending bill. If I lose my job over looking out for the American public, for, for taking a stance for our troops and our border agents, then I'm not quite sure what people want. So now there's this 45-day extension of government funding. Another cliff arrives before Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear whether Speaker McCarthy will be the speaker when that happens. OK, I don't know if I want that along with my turkey, but this bill <laughs> passed does not contain the funding for Ukraine. That's been a huge priority for the Biden administration. So where does that effort go from here? Right. So keeping that Ukraine funding out had been sort of a fig leaf to House Republicans who oppose continued aid to Ukraine. That's sort of how McCarthy was able to get so many Republican votes for it. But the White House has been asking for this $24 billion in emergency funding. They said that um, aid would run out for Ukraine without that funding coming through approximately now. Um, Ukraine's President Zelensky had been in Washington making his own pitch for support. Uh, yesterday, Democratic and Republican leaders in the Senate pledged to take up this funding request separately, and there is broad bipartisan support for it in the Senate. Uh, President Biden, in his statement celebrating the uh, averted government shutdown, was quite pointed when it came to the Ukraine funding, said that saying that support can't be interrupted and, quote, I fully expect the speaker will keep his commitment to the people of Ukraine and secure passage of the support needed to help Ukraine at this critical moment. Though I will say it is not fully clear right now how or when that might happen. In the minute we have left, let's turn to the presidential campaign uh, because it's starting to feel like the general election has already begun. 
Indeed. Uh, Former President Trump, who has been indicted four times, tried to overturn the results of the last election, which he lost, and faces a raft of other civil and legal issues. He hasn't won the primary yet, but he remains the prohibitive front runner, and this was a week of that. The rest of the Republican field, uh, while large in number, looked mighty meek next to him. Uh, They were on the debate stage in California, tossing him a few mild attacks, while Trump was in the key swing state of Michigan taking aim at President Biden. And Biden himself in recent days has been more direct at aiming criticism at Trump, describing him as a unique threat to democracy itself. That is going to be a pillar of Biden's reelection campaign. That's NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keefe. Tam, thanks so much. You're welcome, Aisha. When Russia launched its brutal invasion of Ukraine last year, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, praised Vladimir Putin and Russia's army. On an early autumn day, worshippers gather on a street in Ukraine's capital to sing and pray outside the gates of a vast, gold-domed monastery complex. Holding services here on the sidewalk is a form of protest. In March, this branch of the Orthodox faith, governed by the Moscow patriarch since the 1600s, was kicked out of parts of the monastery complex they view as sacred. Metropolitan Clement, a priest wearing a black robe and chest-length gray beard, is bristling with anger over their exile. He describes it as religious persecution. Our monks lived here from ancient times, he says. Clement is spokesman for the Moscow-affiliated church. He says many of his church's top leaders in Ukraine denounced Russia's invasion and took steps to minimize patriarchy Kirill's influence. But a few steps away, another group of Ukrainians gathers on the street. They carry their country's yellow and blue national flag. It's an angry counter-protest with people, including Alex Melnik, accusing the worshippers of disloyalty. We're at war with Russia, Melnik says. We are protesting against the Moscow church. But there are still roughly 10 thousand church parishes across Ukraine tied to the Moscow Patriarch, where people have worshipped for generations. Karen Nikiforov is one of millions of Orthodox Christians in Ukraine who attend those churches. He says they're caught between two worlds. I'm not proud of my church now, but I'm still there, you know, like believers often do. We are not ideal. Nikiforov studies religion and religious freedom in Kiev and describes himself as a patriotic Ukrainian. He says his church began a process to formally break with Moscow, but that effort stalled. It's half-half. It's not done. It's not full. Ukraine's government clearly views Orthodox clergy with ties to Moscow as a security threat. The country's intelligence service, the SBU, has been raiding Moscow-aligned churches and searching the homes of its top clergy in Ukraine. Earlier this year, the SBU released what they described as a wiretap recording of a top Orthodox church official in Ukraine, Metropolitan Pavel, where he seems to be praising Russia's invasion. There are already Russian flags everywhere, and the people are happy, Pavel says. Another recording of an Orthodox church service in Kyiv appears to show worshippers celebrating Russia's aggression. (laughs) 
Mother Russia is awakening, worshippers sang. Those recordings sparked outrage among Ukrainians who've seen their cities bombed by Russia and tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers killed or injured on the front lines, again with the blessing of the Russian Orthodox Church. But so far, only about 10% of church parishes in Ukraine with ties to the Moscow Patriarch have voted to cut their historic bonds and become fully independent. They are really, really believers, very strong in their in they faith. Karen Nikifora, the religious scholar, says he hopes Ukraine's government will find a way to arrest and prosecute Orthodox clergy who are actively aiding Moscow. But he also wants Ukraine to respect the faith of millions of Ukrainians, like himself, who want to go on worshipping as before. It's impossible to close or to destroy the biggest religious organization in Ukraine because people still will go to the underground churches. They still will go to the uh, rooms or to the houses. And this is very, very dangerous for Ukrainian state. Since independence in the 1990s, Ukraine has developed a tradition of religious tolerance. It's something people here talk about with pride. The president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is Jewish. Defense Minister Rustem Umarov is Muslim. But some Ukrainians say they do think it's time for Moscow-influenced churches to be banned outright. Mikhailo Omilian is a priest and a spokesman for a fully independent Ukrainian-governed branch of the Orthodox faith. Наші збройні сили України дуже вдало дають відсіч російському агресору. Our armed forces are repelling the Russian aggressor, Omilian says. But war will return as long as this collaborating Moscow church is here. This argument frightens and angers many believers. Outside the monastery, where worshippers and protesters face off, a man who calls himself Vladislav says he encounters growing bias from fellow Ukrainians because of his faith. He thinks their banishment from the love is only the beginning. We're living in a country that's not free, and we can't be sure of our safety, he says. As this war grinds on, Ukrainian society is, in most ways, remarkably unified in opposition to Russia. But this question of faith and patriotism is clearly a fault line that won't be resolved easily. Metropolitan Pavel, one of the top leaders of Ukraine's Moscow allied church, remains under house arrest in Kyiv, awaiting trial on serious charges of disloyalty. Meanwhile, many of the worshippers here carry Pavel's photograph and describe him as a martyr of their church. Brian Mann, NPR News, Kyiv. You're listening to NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bridgewater State University, hosting Nobel Peace Prize laureate Lech Walesa on campus October 3rd, bridgew.edu slash events, and Welch and Forbes, over 180 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals, welchforbes.com. 
I'm Tiziana Deering. At WBUR, our job goes beyond reporting the news. We also help make sense of an increasingly complex world. We foster understanding, build community, and when we can, we spark joy and laughter. But as we look forward, we know our future's not a given. Giving monthly, it is key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Or you can call 1-800-909-9287. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody, and Jay Clayton is with me in the studio. And we're just, you know, here to remind you that uh, we are supported by voluntary monthly contributions from our listeners And in fact, that's the largest share of our funding. You're listening and we're asking for your support. Uh, Your support funds our mission-driven, independent journalism, it's nonprofit, and this is how the model works. Uh, we ask you to make a monthly contribution. You make your monthly contribution, and the station that you count on uh, is able to thrive. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven, or you can make your monthly contribution at wbur.org. And coming up in a couple of minutes here on Weekend Edition, uh, Nina Totenberg will break down the agenda in front of the Supreme Court this year. You'll want to stick around for that. And we hope you will take this moment to support that coverage and everything that you get from WBUR. You know, as journalism, the footprint of journalism across the country continues to shrink, uh, two newspapers collapse at, at a rate every week. So it is a significant crisis. It has been for some time. It really falls to public radio stations to step in and provide as much coverage as we can for as many people as we can. And that is all driven by listener support. And that's why it's so important to start a monthly gift that will help us out now, but sustain us into the future for yourself and for everybody who depends on WBUR. The way you do that is to go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. My name's Scott Detrow, and I host All Things Considered on the weekends. I really enjoy the challenge of considering all things. You know, you can be on the line with a senator, then you're shifting gears and you're talking to a musician, you know. For the bulk of my my career as a member station reporter, I was a statehouse reporter. So many things that affect people's lives are happening in those buildings. In just about every state, There's a public radio reporter there. It is a very challenging time to be a reporter. The business models that made journalism work for decades have gone up in smoke, and people increasingly just tune in to news sources that tell them what they want to hear. Public radio stations have really kind of stepped up in the middle of all of this to tell you the facts, to give you the information you need to make your own decisions. The whole NPR network is stronger with your support. Give to this station today, and thanks. Please make your monthly contribution to WBUR by calling 1-800-909-9287 or by going to WBUR.org. And when you make your monthly contribution, guess what? We would love to enhance your wardrobe. You can get a new WBUR t-shirt. It's a baseball shirt. You've got the sort of classic gray uh, body with the WBUR logo. And then you have the the blue, you know, uh, three-quarter length sleeves. Um, 
It looks great, and you'll look great in it. And we would be thrilled to be able to send you that uh, for your contribution of $12 a month. And you make that contribution by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. And what is that $12 a month going to do? Well, tomorrow morning, it's going to make sure that Rupa Shinoi is in the morning edition chair when you wake up to tell you the latest that's going on. It's going to make sure that all the uh, morning edition team in Washington has all the national and international news that you need and here and now and on point and Radio Boston and all things considered. And then, you know, all your pals that you listen to on the weekend. All of this is here thanks to listeners who have stepped up in the past. We're asking you to take your turn now. Start a monthly contribution that will sustain WBUR and give us some financial certainty going forward to get through the tricky times, to plan for the best kind of coverage that we can deliver to Boston and beyond. All of that starts with your monthly contribution. So please start that contribution right now. Take the T-shirt as our thanks wbur.org or 1-800-909-9287. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The U.S. Supreme Court has a big week ahead as it opens a new term with cases on everything from guns to abortion to government regulation. Joining us now to talk about what's coming up is NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So, Nina, let's start with abortion. How is it back on the Supreme Court's docket so soon after the court overturned Roe versus Wade? It's back because the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which includes Texas and some deep south states, the Fifth Circuit issued a decision that significantly restricts the availability of abortion pills, which now account for more than half of all abortions in the U.S., The pills, which are approved for use in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy, were approved by the FDA in 2000, and then in 2020 and 2021, the agency also approved them as safe and effective when obtained via telemedicine and by mail. But the Fifth Circuit overrode the agency's more recent judgments, and the FDA appealed to the Supreme Court, which temporarily blocked the lower court decision from going into effect while the court considers the question. All right, let's let's move on to another issue, guns. There's an important gun rights case in front of the court this term. What is that? In 2022, the court, by a 6-3 to vote, issued this very broad decision declaring that the right to possess and carry a gun is a fundamental constitutional right, much like the First Amendment right of free speech. And importantly, the court said that laws and regulations about guns, in order to be constitutional, have to be analogous to laws on the books at the time of the founding. 
This was the quintessential originalist decision, Aisha, written by Justice Clarence Thomas and hinged to the meaning of the Constitution at the time the Bill of Rights was written in 1789. But, of course, there are lots of situations involving guns that didn't exist at the time of the founding, and the case before the court this term presents one of them, namely a federal law that bans gun possession for anyone who's the subject of a domestic violence restraining order. Now, although the government, in defending the federal statute, points to what it calls analogous laws at the founding, the fact is that there really weren't laws like this back then for the simple reason that women didn't have rights in 1789. They didn't have the vote or property rights for the most part, and they had little to no recourse under the law from an abusive husband. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the Supreme Court deals with this case. We've been talking about cases coming during the term that starts this week. And one of the first, one that's actually being argued this week, is about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. What is this case all about? The CFPB was established by Congress after the 2008 financial crash. The agency is charged with establishing rules for lending, mortgages, and a lot of other financial dealings. It has now been in existence for 13 years, but the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that its funding mechanism is unconstitutional, and that's really a threat to the very existence of the agency. What is the CFPB's funding mechanism? Its funding is capped by Congress. They can't spend any more than a given amount, but it comes from fees paid by banks to the Federal Reserve Board. So it doesn't get an annual appropriation. Why would that be unconstitutional? The Fifth Circuit ruled that the Constitution requires an actual appropriation by Congress each year or every other year. And if that is so, if the Fifth Circuit is right, it could put not just the CFPB out of business, but lots of other agencies, including the Federal Reserve itself and the FDIC, which ensures bank deposits, both of which are funded in similar ways. In preparing a piece about this for next week, I talked to Elizabeth Warren, now a senator, who first proposed the CFPB to protect consumers in their future financial dealings. At the time, she was in the Obama administration, and she says this Supreme Court case is hugely important. If this Supreme Court says that Congress doesn't have the power to set up government agencies and laws without going through appropriations. Understand, not only do all the banking regulators fall on their faces, Social Security and Medicare are now at risk. They don't run through appropriations. They are funded through a separate tax, a separate way to have an agency organized. So the implications of this case, this could echo through the lives of every person in America. I should add that there are lots of other big issues coming before the court this term, including a slug of social media cases. So stay tuned. That's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Nina, thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. Republican lawmakers in Oregon have started a trend in recent years when they don't like what Democrats, who have majorities in the House and Senate there, are proposing, they don't show up. 
The strategy has been so potent, Oregon voters passed a law last year trying to end state house walkouts. Now there's a new complication. From Oregon Public Broadcasting, Dirk Vanderhart has this report. Oregon State Senate had a routine day planned in early May. There was a bill on municipal water rights to vote on, another on adjusting environmental fees. The clerk will please call the roll. But as the Senate president, Rob Wagner, gaveled the chamber into session, it became clear something was off. Only a handful of Republicans were at their desks, meaning just 18 of the Senate's 30 members were in attendance. That's a problem in Oregon, where two-thirds of lawmakers must be present for the Senate or House to operate. So Democrats locked down the chamber. The doorkeepers will bar the doors, and the sergeant-at-arms will attend, and the clerk They sent staff off to look for missing Republicans, and eventually it became clear. GOP senators had left the Capitol. Unexcused members cannot be located. Therefore, there is no quorum for the Senate to conduct business. There was a time in Oregon where scenes like this amounted to high drama. Not anymore. Republican lawmakers here have been stuck in the minority for more than a decade. In the last four years, they've started a new tactic— walking out to block bills they disagree with. In 2019, they were upset about proposals to restrict guns and hike business taxes. The doorkeepers will please bar the doors and the sergeant of arms will... The following year, it was a bill to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. The doorkeepers will bar the doors, the sergeant of arms will attend... And the this year, the Oregon Republicans like Senate Minority Leader Tim Canope were angry about a lot. Democrats were pushing to expand abortion and transgender protections, along with new gun control rules. They just want to do what they want to do because they have the votes. And we're saying that's the tyranny of the majority and it will not stand. So they walked. It was a familiar strategy, one Democrats had used decades ago when they were in the minority. But this time, the walkout was surprising because Oregon voters thought they'd ended walkouts for good. Measure 113, voters overwhelmingly approved it. Look at that lopsided vote there. That's a local NBC anchor on election night 2022. She's talking about a ballot measure sponsored by Democrats that created harsh new penalties for lawmakers who refused to attend floor sessions. It ensured any politician marked unexcused 10 or more times can't seek re-election. The measure passed easily, but this year's no-shows made clear it wasn't having the intended impact. As the walkout neared the one-month mark, left-leaning voters railed against Republicans during a hearing at the Capitol. I'll be diggity damned if Oregon voters didn't already decide definitively that legislators were going to face accountability for these cowardly walkouts. Do your job. Be adults in the room. Put on your big boy pants. The walkout finally ended in mid-June, after Democrats agreed to scale back some of their priorities. At 42 days, it was the longest walkout in state history, with 10 senators, a full third of Oregon's Senate, deemed ineligible to seek re-election. But Canope, the Republican who led the walkout, had a plan, one that might ensure he and other Republicans can keep their seats. We knew what the potential consequence was. We were obviously going to have legal action to follow. Republicans are now arguing in court that the ballot measure Democratic leaders pushed to end walkouts contained a fatal flaw. The convoluted legalese of the measure could open the door for senators to win another term before any penalties kick in. John DiLorenzo is an attorney representing Republican senators. He says the loophole went unnoticed when voters passed the measure, but must be honored. If the voters enacted something that differs from what they intended, the remedy is pretty clear. Do it right. Do it over again. State elections officials disagree and say Republicans who walked are blocked from seeking re-election. The fight could come before the Oregon Supreme Court in coming weeks. 
Depending on how the court rules, lawmakers might be free to launch walkouts for years to come. No matter who wins in court, more changes are afoot. Some Democratic legislators are already talking about putting a new measure before voters next year, one that they say will finally make scenes like this. The sergeant-at-arms has reported that unexcused members cannot be located. A thing of the past. For NPR News, I'm Dirk Vanderhart in Portland, Oregon. Las Vegas police have arrested a man prosecutors suspect of organizing the 1996 killing of rapper Tupac Shakur. The rapper was 25 years old when after leaving a Vegas casino, a white Cadillac pulled up next to Shakur's car and opened fire. The case seemed to go cold until Las Vegas police executed a search warrant back in July at a home connected to Dwayne Keefe D. Davis. Now authorities are accusing Davis of being, quote, the shot caller that night. He was indicted on a murder charge and is due in court this week. We spoke with Joel Anderson about the Shakur case back in July. We spoke with Joel Anderson about the Shakur case back in July. He's a staff writer at Slate and hosted a season of the podcast Slow Burn that focused on the murder of Shakur. He began with some context about Davis. Okay, so we can start with Keefe D, otherwise known uh, by his government name, Dwayne Keith Davis. He was a big-time drug dealer in south-central L.A. in the Compton area, and he was one of the, you know, OG Southside Crips uh, from that time. He was the uncle of Orlando Anderson, another Southside Crip, who is the man who got into a fight with Tupac in a Vegas casino after a Mike Tyson fight. It wasn't long after that fight that they had in the casino that Tupac is shot to death. Mm, There is a very famous video of Tupac and his entourage getting into it with Orlando Anderson at the MGM. That fight has been seen and known for a very long time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And if you think about it in the moment, it's sort of remarkable. Tupac was not a gangster, but he injected himself into a gang fight that night, which is how things seem to have went pretty deadly pretty quickly. So in, in 2018, Davis, the uncle of Orlando Anderson, gave an interview for a BET show where he admitted to being in the front seat of the Cadillac that pulled up next to Shakur's car and said his nephew, Orlando Anderson, was one of the people in the back seat where the shots were fired from. Now, Anderson died in 1998. So what do you make of his uncle's comments to BET? I mean, we have to be careful here, but it sounds like he's walking up to the line of saying, yeah, we was there and we did it, or I know who did it, right? Oh, it'd be fair in this instance to call Keefe D a habitual line stepper. Like, I mean, not only has he crept up to the line, but he's crossed over it a number of times. I mean, he's written his own book, Compton Street Legend, in which he said that he and his nephew were in the car. He's given interviews, many of them on YouTube. That's what he's been doing for the last 27 years, and it seems like maybe it's caught up with him. Why do you think it's taken so long for the police to even make some type of advance in this case? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is that, you know, I mean, without being too explicit about it, this is a young black man, right? And so Vegas didn't have a lot of incentive to look into the case, for one, because that really could have affected a trial. Let's say a murder trial happens about Tupac in the wake of that. I mean, think about how that might have affected the tourism industry in Las Vegas, something that they've sort of tried to struggle with for years about, hey, we want to make this a safe place. But also the other thing is that 
most of the people, the person that's directly responsible for Tupac's death is dead, more than likely, allegedly, Orlando Anderson. And everybody else in that car, except for Keefe D on that night, they're dead too. So the police really had no incentive to make a case here because there's nobody to throw in prison, really. Anybody who hasn't fallen victim to conspiracy theories has always sort of known that Keefe D and Orlando Anderson were involved in Tupac's death in one way or another. That slates Joel Anderson. He hosted season three of the podcast Slow Burn. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Lisa Mullins. Local news is more relevant than ever before. Whether we're covering climate change or income inequality or health care, these issues affect us right where we live. WBUR's local journalism needs a strong future, but that's far from certain. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. Help get us to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. And you can also start your monthly gift by making a phone call, 1-800-909-9287. Monthly giving is very important, and so is precision timing. Right now, for the next five minutes, only a triple match is in effect. And what that means is when you make your generous monthly contribution in the next five minutes, your contribution is tripled for an entire year. It's a monthly contribution, you know, matched three times for the entire year. It's an incredible opportunity for you to be able to triple the impact of your generosity. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. So if you, you know, you're one of those people who sort of thinks visually, imagine you've got a $20 bill in your wallet, right? And suddenly you look again and oh, it just became $60. That's what will happen when you give that $20 to WBUR and we put it together with this matching money, but it will happen not just this month. It will happen every single month for the next year. That is a huge impact you can have on the journalism we all need with that contribution, $20 a month, $30 a month, $50 a month, whatever you can give each month automatically. It will be tripled, and it will be tripled for the next year. But again, as Sharon says, only for a few minutes now, just four more minutes to get in on this match. So it's one of these things you got to jump in to take advantage of it very quickly because it's only going to be on the table for four more minutes. Go to WBUR.org to get in on the match, WBUR.org, or here's the phone number you can call, 1-800-909-9287. You know how those familiar phrases can sometimes just, you know, become so familiar you don't really think about them? You listen to WBUR, you've heard the phrase, we're funded by you, our listeners. Think about that for a second. That's you. Listener support is the foundation of our independent journalism. Listener support is the largest share 
of our funding. So your monthly contribution to WBUR, that's what helps WBUR do what WBUR does, which is provide the independent journalism that you count on. So please uh, make your monthly contribution right now because for the next, oh, two and a half minutes, uh, that's when your monthly contribution is tripled for an entire year. You can go to the website, WBUR.org, or you can call 1-800-909-9287. And if you can give, say, $100 a month, which is, you know, for many people, that's a, a cell phone bill or a electric bill or something like that. If you can do $100 a month for WBUR, that's going to be tripled, too, to $300 a month for the next year. So, again, whatever you give, $100 a month, $12 a month, what, anything in between, whatever you do for a monthly automatic gift is going to give WBUR some financial certainty in the future, and it's going to be tripled for the first year only if you start your gift in the next couple of minutes. You have to be quick about this. 1-800-909-9287. 1-800-909-9287 to get in on that triple match. You can do it also at wbur.org. Think about how good you'll feel when you know you've supported WBUR and then think about how good you'll feel perhaps three times even better because you know you've supported WBUR at triple the impact by taking part in this triple match, which you can only do for the next minute and change. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Our goal for this fundraiser is for 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors. So if you're somebody that hasn't contributed before, this would be the perfect moment to do it because of the triple match. So that your $15 a month, uh, thanks to the triple match, turns into $45 a month, you know, or, you know, as Jay mentioned, $100 a month becomes $300 a month. Whatever amount is right for you is going to triple in its impact for WBUR. Again, the phone number is 1-800-909-9287. And you can also make your monthly contribution online at WBUR.org. And, you know, we've got a new, relatively new Sunday lineup. We've got at 10 o'clock coming up, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and then at 11 o'clock, the New Yorker Radio Hour. Still more to come on Weekend Edition. Take this last minute, though, where your gift will be tripled. Whatever monthly gift you make, automatic support from you will be tripled for a year if you start that gift right now. Just go to WBUR.org. Or call 1-800-909-9287. Last chance to get in on the match. Thank you for doing it. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global communities make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Former President Jimmy Carter turns 99 years old today. People in Atlanta celebrated the Georgia native's big birthday a little early, though, over concern about a federal government shutdown. They had cake, music, and games yesterday at the Carter Presidential Library and Museum. Raul Bally with member station WABE in Atlanta paid a visit. The lobby is packed with kids playing marbles, adults making birthday cards, and many people lined up for birthday cake. Different visitors have different reasons why they wanted to show up to honor Jimmy Carter. Liz Hutchison is visiting from Annapolis, Maryland, and is an oncology nurse. Him being so public about his battle with cancer has been an inspiration to a lot of people and helped advance research. So I, I think that's a reason that I personally deeply appreciate him. So it's just nice to be here to celebrate for him. Others here have stories of meeting Jimmy Carter, including Ken Driggs of Atlanta. He was involved in Florida politics when Carter visited Tallahassee during his run for president. I thought he was a good man. We seem to find that harder and harder to, to get now. Carter has been in home hospice since February, but did make a public appearance with his wife, Rosalind, last weekend. Their grandson, Jason Carter, says it's been a blessing to watch the grace with which his grandfather has been facing the final chapter of his life. And he adds that the former president and his wife have been gratified by the tributes that have been pouring in from around the world. Whether they're aware of that entire scope, uh, it would be hard, but they certainly have felt the love and we've been keeping them up to date on, on all of this outpouring of, of support and respect. Typically, adult admission to the Carter Library and Museum is $12, but for President Carter's birthday weekend, the museum charged just 99 cents for admission, says spokesperson Tony Clark. It was about 10 years ago I came up with the idea of charging the same amount as the President and Mrs. Carter's birthday, and we've always said we're waiting for them to get to be 100 so we can charge a dollar. But getting this close at 99, this is, uh, this is really exciting for us. Clark, who has worked at the Carter Library for nearly two decades, led the singing of Happy Birthday before visitors got to enjoy slices of chocolate marble cake. Happy birthday to you. For NPR News, I'm Raul Bally in Atlanta. Mexico is a hot destination for those looking to escape cold winters. Monarch butterflies know this. They fly south each year, and the organization Monarch Watch tracks their mysterious journey. Monarchs first reach the overwintering sites in Mexico almost on the same day every year. How is that possible? Questions and answers later today on All Things Considered. Listen on your radio, smart speaker, or smartphone. And Yomi Adegoke's new novel, The List, Ola has a very tough decision to make. It's only a month before she's meant to marry the love of her life, Michael. But then he shows up on an online list of men in media accused of sexual misconduct. Does she believe him when he says it's not true? Does she dump him? Does she go through with the wedding? And if she does, what does that say about her? 
Well, you're asking all the right questions and we can't tell you what happens, but we can, however, talk to the author, Yomi Adegoke, who joins us today from New York. Welcome to the show. Hi, Isha. Thanks for having me. So first, introduce us to the main characters of the book, Ola and Michael. They are this real power couple. Yeah, so Ola and Michael are a Instagram famous couple who kind of seem to have it all on the surface. They're young, they're beautiful. They are what I thought was quite specifically important to sort of elevate is the fact that they're a black, dark-skinned couple, which, especially in the UK, you don't necessarily see much of in terms of the media. And as you mentioned, an anonymous list goes up on social media accusing multiple different men of varying degrees of abuse, and Michael is named. And the list is very much a catalyst that exposes other underlying issues that this so-called couple goals relationship sort of had prior to the allegations being made. And this list, it's like a a whole character of its own. How did you come up with the idea? I mean, there there were some lists of men in media, kind of bad men in media, published in 2017. Like, how much of that inspired the book? It's so interesting that you said that you feel like the list is its own character. It really, it really is. And I'd say that the internet is very much its own character in the book. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, there were a spate of lists that had gone viral in 2017. And as a journalist and as a feminist, as Ola is, I think my knee-jerk response was kind of like, it was a positive thing. It was important to hold men Accountable, not just men, but you know, primarily men, accountable in ways that we hadn't seen before. Um, it was finally giving victims and survivors um, a voice. That being said, um, being a journalist and someone who you know grew up on the internet, sort of very aware of stranger danger and the idea that you never know who you are speaking to online, I then I think started to have questions just about you know the ethics of that format and how easily anonymity can be weaponized online. So yeah, wanted to write something on it. And yeah, the rest is very much history. There is this moment in the book when Ala finally meets a person who published a list and she's told, whatever you do, choose you. And that line really stuck with me because I felt like that really is the lesson. Absolutely. And I feel like the story of the women is so frequently erased. And I felt someone like Ola, um, Ola's not just connected to a guy that's been accused of something heinous. She also is a feminist. So, you know, the stakes are incredibly high for her. She is risking, you know, looking like a hypocrite. She's risking having her own feminist credentials questioned. And the pressure on her is huge. And I did want to, whatever the outcome was, show Ola choosing herself and being able to define herself outside of the man she is with because she's not only defined by her relationship with him she's also defined later on by his purported crimes you talk about them as a black british couple as a dark-skinned black british couple right talk to me about the the nuances that that also brought to even the accusations right this is an accusation against a black man right of intimate uh, violence or harassment right what is the the role of that and how does that make this story a bit different than it would have been if this was a white couple in terms of visible dark-skinned 
Black couples in the media, um, we do not have that many. The kind of representations that we get in terms of Black love, and I think I can say with confidence it's similar in the States, that when you do see Black couples, the likelihood of the woman being also dark skin tends to be quite rare. So mm-hmm. when people do see that, people really tend to root for that couple. Also, on top of that, you have Michael's identity in particular as a Black man, which means that there is, you know, sort of perceived or I suppose assumed deviance or guilt um, when it comes to allegations such as these, which I think often gets lost in the conversation. Of course, historically, there have been allegations made against Black men that have been fueled by racism, but also believed because of racism. And that, I think, complicates the story and the narrative. It's very complicated because two things can be true at once. It can be true that, on the one hand, Black men do, you know, have a perceived and assumed guilt And simultaneously, there are men that have been guilty of what they've been accused of. So, yeah, it's I think it brings a very different dimension to the conversation compared to whether the protagonists were a different race. And the list is going to be adapted for TV. Congratulations. What are you most excited about, you know, putting it on the screen? I think I'm excited to see the different conversations it will foster. I actually think people deal slightly better maybe with problematic, complicated characters on screen. It's slightly easier to empathize with them and get in their heads. Yomi Adegoke's debut novel, The List. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding. With three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass, Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org. And Arts Thursdays at Harvard, with Carpenter Center for the Visual Arts 60th Anniversary. Artists talk by Popel and opening of This Machine Creates Opacities on October 5th at 6. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. And you can also make that monthly gift by calling 1-800-909-9287. It's coming right up on 10 o'clock. Wait, wait, don't tell me is coming your way. Just before that starts is the perfect time for you to make your monthly contribution to WBUR. Get that rolling at 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. We are suggesting a monthly gift because we've got an eye toward financial sustainability. That's what we're trying to build here. And monthly gifts are the key to that. So we hope you will start your monthly gift for all the reasons that you listen to WBUR. Just go to WBUR.org 
or you can give us a call 1-800-909-9287. And we'd be delighted to send you a great new WBUR t-shirt. It's a baseball shirt, gray body, blue, three-quarter length sleeves, and the WBUR logo for your generous contribution of $12 a month. And you can make that contribution by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.